This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm speaking with the critics and authors Maria Santa Catarina, the CEO of Santa Catarina Global Strategic Leadership and Board Executive Advisory, and Chris Long, the director and founder of Long Solutions. Maria Santa Catarina is a global strategic leader and board executive advisor who has worked in 100 plus markets and has over 30 years of international experience. She focuses on lead and growth, strategic change, and digital business transformations, particularly on the level of corporate culture and strategy. She advocates for a new approach to futurist imagining, which she calls a adaptive resilience in order to build enduring value and values while responding to the acceleration of change, complexity, and exponential technological disruption. Chris Leong is a transformation and change leader with a career spanning over 30 years in financial services, enterprise software, and consulting industries globally. He thinks about, writes, and advises on the impacts of automated decision-making and profiling outcomes from all digital services on customers and consumers, the trustworthiness of socio-technical systems, and the organizations that deploy them. Hi, Chris. Hi, Deb. Hi, Maria. Hi, Deb. So I thought we would get right into it and start off with defining some key terms, I think, that are going to be really useful and and important for our conversation. The term socio-technical system, which is our subject today, might be new to some folks, but my guess is that even if the term itself is new, our listeners interact with these systems all the time, even if we don't regularly call them by the name that we're going to call them today. So maybe we can just start off with like a keyword definition. What is a socio-technical system? So... Some people equate socio-technical systems with AI. They use it synonymously. Uh, However, it's much, much more than that. Generally speaking, a socio-technical system comprises of hardware, software, the human consumer, the deploying organization and society at large, uh, because these systems are, are deployed out there in the real world. And due to its ability to directly impact humans, its design must involve stakeholders, and I use the word stakeholders, and this is far-reaching from communities being impacted, as well as those in the deploying organizations, so inside and outside. Its design must also take into consideration an understanding of the social structures, the roles and rights of human consumers, and the impact on society from all possible outcomes. And all these systems that are powered by so-called AI, fundamentally machine learning, that impact human consumers directly and instantly through automated decision-making and profiling our socio-technical systems. And the examples are everywhere, as you mentioned. Our smartphones are socio-technical systems, one example of. And uh, others include uh, automated employment decision tools, chatbots, and personal digital assistants. These socio-technical systems are complex systems, and they are complex because they have interdependencies, interconnectivity, and an intricate set of elements that transcend disciplines. So you you can liken these elements to organs and tissues in the human body, but we call it elements for now. And when we then consider that these AI technologies are non-deterministic by nature, the complexity is, is compounded. And as explained before, it is not just about technology and data, and Maria will explain why. So I think the part that is often forgotten is the socio part. So the socio considerations, really what we're talking about is human autonomy, human agency, and that's really what we mean by human centricity. And that's you know very important, the values, the culture, the ethical principles, all of the things that really pertain to humanity. The other side of it is on the technical side, there are considerations when it comes to looking at the actual algorithms and how they are actually constructed. If you don't think about the ethical considerations in the first instance, it's going to be very difficult for that algorithm to 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 reflect any human values whatsoever if it's just blindly going to follow a task. On the system side of things, then obviously you've got to look at processes and processes is still a human factor. People seem to think that it's technical, but actually it pertains to humans and procedures and such things. So, you know, when we talk about processes and procedures, we're also really referring to the operational side of things, but also the organizational side of things. 
And that's really important because then we get into governance structures, we get into oversight, accountability, and even the distribution of responsibilities, I should say. So in terms of duties, in fact, and that boils down into daily practices. So when you think of a socio-technical system, what you should really be thinking about is that it's a communication system. It's, it's a system that enables the flow of information to be exchanged between the parties. That can be software agent. It can be a human agent. Um, but it is about communication. It is about the exchange of information. And that's really important. And I think those sorts of considerations kind of go in the background because somehow we think it's all about technology. Can you give us a short history of uh, socio-technical systems or STSs, as I may call them uh, in this conversation? Where did they come from? When did they become so pervasive? I, as I am hearing you talking, I'm realizing that these things are all over the place. I see them all the time. And I'm wondering when that started to happen and if they've changed over time. And if so, how they've changed. I wish we had about two hours to explain the history. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll attempt to do it in one minute and a half. <laughs> Chris, you can, you can jump in. So, um, so it's a really interesting history, actually. And um, I'll, I'll sort of take it back to when this term was first coined. Um, in 1894, a chap called Van Marken came up with this unfortunate term called social engineering. In his mind, it was all to do with adding science to the management of human problems. And sort of in the 20s, they talked about cybernetics. They talked about this concept of the loop, the feedback loop. But in actual fact, the term socio-technical system was first coined by a chap called Eric Trist. And that was in sort of the 50s, the so-called Tavistock Institute here in London. And what happened then is they were looking at ways to improve productivity. So what they did is they actually studied the miners and to see, you know, why was it that productivity was not improving? And that's kind of the interesting thing about this is that initially, these systems were being looked at for manufacturing and, 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 you know, for sort of assembly line production, as it were. But then in today's world, we actually find ourselves in an office environment, in a, in a more sort of service oriented economy with the pervasiveness of these socio-technical systems, although people call it digital, digitalization. <laughs> but it's a bit more than that. So just to pick up on the pervasiveness, so where where this started to pick up is really around the time when uh, technology uh, evolved to a state where we we have then smart devices, very, very fast uh, internet speeds, big data analytics, machine learning capabilities basically just enable large, you know, large and fast processing of lots of data evolution of, of the whole HTML5 UI, um, you know, and, and, and really the, the allowing the interface to be developed to a, a certain, to, to a degree that uh, supports engagement or, or um, and, and also obviously accessibility to the development tools that, that can harness the, the uh, machine learning capabilities. So low code, no code, and, and so forth, you know, open source uh, software and so forth. So when you bring all of that together, that is when we, we saw an explosion in, um, you know, in the in the uh, in the creativity of solutions uh, using you know the the embedded uh, machine learning technologies and and also because it's so accessible, uh, we'll talk about hype later. You know, they, they've just just been deployed out there everywhere, and and they they basically become they have become part of our part of our lives in our homes. Alexa, you know, in our phone Siri, you've got most things that that communicate with with individuals with humans. They are socio-technical systems. And I think, you know, to your point of earlier, um, this whole thing has accelerated, I think, also as a result of the pandemic. I think, you know, there's a massive panic. You know, how do we keep the, you know, the, the lights on? Literally that. And so lots of companies, they've kind of rushed into this kind of system thing very quickly without really understanding what the implications are. And so the, the whole question of ethics has been completely sidestepped. And if you raise it, then people kind of frown and they think, you know, what's that got to do with the technology? But it actually has a lot to do with the technology. It's it's really fundamental. And so, you know, I think going forward, people are going to have to slow down. <laughs> They're going to have to just stop and pause and think and actually understand what the ramifications are because, because they are far reaching, actually. You know, it's so interesting. The reason that we're having this conversation on the show is that your article on socio-technical systems um, was sent to me very shortly after an incident that made me really think newly about these systems. One of the reasons that I wanted to talk about socio-technical systems on this show was an incident that had come up 
this is again right before I read your article, a friend of mine needed to see a doctor and she needed to see a doctor with some urgency. So she called the medical office where after a few rings, an automated voice messaging service, which I now know is, is called an STS, said, did you know that you can make an appointment through our online portal? And then gave the website address. So my friend went online to the doctor's website using the address she was supplied over the phone and then spent the next 15 minutes navigating a decision tree of options by inputting information for her reasons for making that appointment. She put in her malady, her phone information, her insurance information, et cetera. It takes about 15, 20 minutes to do something like that. After which she received a response on the portal that gave her a message that read, we are unable to schedule an appointment. Please call the office and then gave the phone number that she had just dialed. So she calls the office again, which again directs her to the website in this ongoing feedback loop that really led nowhere. And so she called me in tears because she had just spent you know, a good hour of her time in a, a pretty urgent moment processing her information through this website. And I realized that the system, which is probably bought and installed by the medical practice to save the doctor's office some time or to save the doctor's office at the expense of additional receptionists, was not in fact saving time by employing an automated service. It was redistributing time costs to the patients. And I started to think about how many systems I navigate every single day and how much extra time in my life I now give over to cover the time costs of these so-called labor-saving devices of automation. They are in my workplace. They are in every single system that I have to navigate. Every time I want to make an appointment at the DMV, every single time I need to deal with uh, health insurance. So, so much of this automation, uh, at least the way that it's sold to us, is about saving time or saving labor. Well, exactly. There's no such thing as a one-click. You know that book that came out some point when Amazon dis declared that it's you know it's so convenient for the consumer, you just go one click and you can get everything at the touch of a button. It's not true, actually. It's not true. And to implement these systems is really complex. So just think about it for a second. Um, we human beings, we make split, you know, we make decisions in a split second. It's instinctive, uh, but it's also intuitive. You know, we use our human consciousness, we use our tacit knowledge, we use our explicit knowledge. We sense the environment. We feel the environment. We know if it's painful or if it's pleasurable. The machines do not. Nor do they understand human language. Nor can they see the context. They cannot see the real world. So it's really problematic. So imagine anything simple, like you just explained, which should be simple. I pick up the phone. I ring the doctor's surgery. I have a problem and I'm given an appointment. Look how long it took. And then the worrying side of that is what if, when you're going around and around and around in the loop, what if you don't get through? And then what happens? You're dead. So it's not saving cost. There are some really serious implications. And for the doctor's surgery, they could be liable. So it works, it cuts both ways. For the human, it's not great, and it's not great for the company. Um, so, so, Deb, you, 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 you referred to the, the word automation before. And I think, you know, if we look back at the past decades, the deployment of technology for automation, right, has been around and, and it's, it's worked. It's created or delivered efficiencies, it saved costs, et cetera, et cetera. But they, they were done using what we call deterministic technologies in settings and environments that are predictable and where processes can be repeatable. Yeah, unfortunately, with machine learning and the AI-powered uh, STSs, we are now dealing with non-deterministic technologies, which can behave differently in real-world settings. When these things have been deployed with, without any consideration for the non-expected or unintended out, uh, consequences or outcomes, then there's no off-ramp for the end user, the consumer, the human. You know, when these things happen, we have problems. Uh, and so therefore, if you look at how these things potentially could have happened, we think it's fundamentally down to, well, one of the reasons, a lack of diverse inputs and what we call diverse inputs and multi-stakeholder feedback. So this includes diversity of thought, diversity in lived experiences. So you're looking beyond the technology and the data when these STSs were conceived and when they uh, go through the whole life cycle. And also, like Maria mentioned, ethics, right? Why wasn't ethics a priority when these things were were developed, designed, developed, and deployed. And they, these are, yeah, have been the contributing factors for a lot of the problems that we see today. And, you know, the thing is this, you can't actually reduce complexity. There is this notion that um, you can operate these things scientifically, and actually you can't. 
Not entirely. One of the sort of early pioneers of the socio-technical system, a lady called Mum, she in 2006 coined this term ethics, but she didn't mean ethics in terms of philosophy. She meant actually creating systems which were going to be technologically advanced, but beneficial to the human being. And and this, this idea of beneficial is what has been lost. And it's often ignored because in the haste of engineering something and making it engineeringly precise, uh, in engineering terms, I should say, or mathematically accurate and uh, more to the point, it leaves out the idiosyncrasies of human beings. And um, I'm afraid to say that we cannot be categorized or classified in a simple archetype. We, we're not the law of averages. We are all individuals. And this point is really fundamental. So if from a company's perspective, you know, they need to also realize that um, you don't click your fingers, take it out of the box, plug it in and play. It doesn't quite work like that. It actually incurs costs and there are hidden risks. At the moment, a lot of the off-the-shelf systems are actually a little bit along the lines of black box. So even a data scientist can't explain to you how the machine came to that decision. That's a huge problem. Well, I actually wanted to go back to something you said earlier, because there's a lot of things that are kind of coalescing in my mind based on some of of your answers, especially the really interesting history of uh, STSs, which were initially developed, as you mentioned, um, for miners and for uh, laborers, and then were quickly adopted by uh, the administrative class or the bureaucratic class or the white collar class as efficiency systems. And of course, the the white collar class and the administrative class is all about bureaucracies. And it is all about the transformation of individuals into uniformity. And so now I'm thinking about the way that potentially the move toward bureaucratic or administrative classes is actually coinciding with and potentially enlarging the scope of STSs. Because, you know, at least at my university, I think of this ballooning administrative class, which comes up with new procedures, new forms, new policies, and new requirements on almost a daily basis. And the attitude of these kinds of administrators uh, is to create a new streamlined procedure. And because the system is somewhat automated, the expectation is that we can just very quickly learn the procedure or we can learn the system and therefore they don't need to hire or they can you know, uh, reduce the cost of having to have people administering what used to be some sort of human interaction procedure. And there's no incentive to combine or rationalize any of these systems. And in fact, if you purchase a system, there's every reason to use that system rather than to get rid of it or to combine it. And so now we have an administrative class whose, I think, uh, raison d'etre is the creation of systems. We have a new bureaucracy that prioritizes this idea of uniformity over the individuality. And, And these things to me seem to be coming together to balloon STS systems and to to put them in place. Am I on to something here? (laughs) Absolutely, because it's the exact opposite. What is happening today is the exact opposite as to how they were originally intended to be. The whole point about socio-technical systems was the socio bit. They wanted to make sure that the work systems would be designed in such a way as the human being could participate and the social element thereof. That means human interaction, that means human connection, and that is absent today. And as you've just brilliantly illustrated, it's like we're automating bureaucracy, but it's on steroids. <laughs> it is, it is, it is, it is, it is wrapping, you know, a noose around our neck. And actually, if we are in the information age, if this is the so-called age of knowledge, how do we best learn? How do we best communicate? It is through human interaction. Now, the data cannot at all <laughs> collect that nuance and that beauty and that richness and that intricacy of language, of culture, of depth, of context, of all of those things that we human beings are actually great at. And I think we ought to say that. And it's it's overly simplified. And so actually, even from a, a company's perspective or an institution's perspective, such as a university, how much information do you lose by missing the human contact? Yeah. I mean, there's so much more data that we supply when we are in person or when at least we're interacting with other people that we lose when we are in the socio-technical systems that try to process information in that way. I mean, you teach. So if you'd like to know your student, can you glean anything at all from a form that is presented to you with the person's credentials? Do you know who your student is? 
Yeah, I'm, I am very sad about this. You know, for me, teaching used to be interacting with students. I would hand out a syllabus on the first day. I would read some essays. I would talk to students during office hours and see them in class. I would give a final exam or a final essay, and that would be it. And now what I do is I create a website, and I process forms, and I fill out what are called poly profiles, meaning um, the profiles of my students, and I check what their grade uh, progress is and what their progress to degree is. And then I interact with administrators who are tracking these students. And that's what the uh, profession of teaching is these days. And, you know, I think that on principle, each of these systems was intended to expedite or streamline or enhance learning on some level. But of course, I'm not I'm not sure that any of those things have been accomplished and I'm also not sure that anybody is learning more or that I'm teaching better because I have these new systems in place. So you're playing a guessing game with the computer. <laughs> Did I understand what my student meant? <laughs> you know, I think for me it goes back to the purpose of when these systems were conceived in somebody's minds, right? What what were what were the purpose of of them thinking about having the system in the first place, right? What were they trying to do? And if they can't think through the, the, the um, you know, all of those characteristics, all those elements, what, what are the outcomes that they want the systems to provide within the, the, the environment that, you know, they're deployed in for the human, per, you know, consumer, then they, they haven't understood what the, or they haven't been able to articulate the true purpose. And hence they've gone on and often built something that doesn't reflect the purpose of that system that's been deployed. Chris, your answer gets right to the heart of my next question, because I think that there's two things going on. The first is that the intention with which these systems were designed are not actually executed in the utility and in the use and the employment of these systems. But the second part really has to do with a kind of ideal of what these systems ought to provide, um, which you say, you argue in uh, one of your articles is mostly hype. And I'm going to actually quote you here in that article. You write that uh, within every large organization, digital transformation initiatives have been accelerated by the global pandemic and advances in technology, hardware, and software, which have subsequently increased data processing capabilities. These have resulted in the realization of cost reductions through automation, improved efficiencies in business processes, and insights from big data analytics. When advancement in machine learning techniques provided additional processing capabilities, these automation, efficiency improvements, and cost reduction initiatives provided the opportunities for boards and CEOs to replace human beings with socio-technical systems on the premise and spurious promise that the outcomes were equivalent or better. Unfortunately, the reality is that much of this promise is hype. What do you mean by hype? And what's the reality? So, so the way I, I look at it is everyone loves a shiny new toy, especially tech toys, right? So I remember very succinctly uh, around the time when GPT-3 hit, yeah, hit the airwaves, everybody was raving about its capabilities, large language models, and the excitement built up by the media reports and marketing. And, and people I was speaking with couldn't, you know, put it on a pedestal high enough. Now, obviously, that then, those reported achievements and excitement uh, then perpetuate the beliefs that the progress of these technologies can then be transitioned into other areas. Okay, so so this advancement in one particular area, you can actually you know uh, transition in other areas, and and on on that sort of hype basis, startups got funding. You know, we see VCs and and private equity firms sold on the promise of return on investment. So now the technology is at this stage, obviously you know without actually digging through and doing the diligence this is promise unfortunately you know they they they've uh, invested based on the perceived upsides with little or no realization of the limitations flaws and downside risks which really needed to be understood assessed managed and mitigated so so this whole blind trust in in that advancement got us to to where we are today and the reality is you know we see the headlines all sorts of harms, discrimination coming, you know, uh, coming out of these STSs, and and they're well documented in in various incident repositories, and you you see them in the news, and now you see them in the court cases, litigation, class actions, and also regulatory fines. And, and I don't think that 
always starting to obviously build up, but I don't actually think, unfortunately, that this realization has hit home within boardrooms yet and the CEOs. You know, I think that is this that there's an acceptance that the, the, the hidden risks within a lot of these systems that exist either directly within the enterprise or within the supply chain called value chain, because a lot of these organizations procure solutions right from third party suppliers, solution uh, you know uh, vendors. And those third-party providers actually use machine learning to develop socio-technical systems, which then do the things that are, uh, these organizations have outsourced them to do. Technology ought to be an enabler. And I think our um, kind of concern is that um, it's posing constraints. So, you know, we, we talked earlier about the human interaction, the communication element, and, you know, the, 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 the nonverbal cues, all of the kind of richness of the human interaction is somewhat lost. And it seems to me that in today's world, um, there is a, a kind of a race to engineer the human out of the loop. And that in itself is quite problematic. Take a company like Microsoft, they've made a kind of a big U-turn <laughs> in terms of the way that they've structured their organizational culture. Um, so for example, it used to be the case that if, you know, let's say I'm a business unit manager, you know, I have 10 people on my team, I have to, you know, let one person go because, you know, that's just the way it is. It's just the law of averages. Whereas today's world, they have a slightly different take. They're actually trying to empower the individual. They're trying to sort of talk to their aspirations and their expectations and so forth. Now, you can't do that with a socio-technical system. I mean, purely from a technical perspective, you can't you can't help a person grow, evolve, develop, you know, all of those great things that we human beings are good at. And it's a lifetime journey. And, and, and if you don't have the human interaction, then you kind of are missing something. And if you want to talk about organizational memory, for instance, which people do, you can't just engineer that. You can't do it technically only. You know, we'd like to see a world where we use the technology in the right way. And, and there's room, there's optionality in, in, in the technical sense and, and equifinality also, that you can you can reach the same goal through different ways, but you also have options as to how you do that. And that there can be human interactions before everything is just translated into data. In preparation for this interview, I spent a little bit of time talking to people who have created or have worked on socio-technical systems. And you know, they gave me some really interesting answers to some of my more aggressive uh, questions or accusatory questions about the ways that these systems can go terribly wrong or the ways that they're maddening. One person with whom I spoke said that, you know, while he admitted that socio-technical systems in their current iteration are somewhat frustrating, his argument is that we're really just at a very initial phase of them that these socio-technical systems are what he called uh, in an adolescent stage, meaning that they're kind of awkward, right? They maybe have voice changing in really awkward moments. Uh, sometimes there's an awkward facial feature that uh, expands um, beyond what would characteristically look symmetrical or normal. But give these things time and they will get better. Another person with whom I spoke said that socio-technical systems have uh, replaced and, and made much more streamlined important processes. For example, we used to have to go to a travel agent to book our flights and to book our hotels. And uh, it was both very costly and very time consuming to do that. And now you can just go on a socio-technical system called Kayak, for example, or Southwest and book a flight uh, relatively easily, book a hotel yourself, uh, and therefore bypass a lot of the more complicated, time-consuming, and frustrating systems that were previously in place. So I guess my response back to these ideas of hype is to recognize that some of these systems do seem to actually uh, complement our human experience quite well, and to ask you whether or not you think that, give it a couple years or maybe a decade, these things will ultimately get better. Uh, no, <laughs> um, we don't think they're adolescents. We think they're kind of less than toddlers. So if it's a narrow transactional task that we are seeking, for example, booking a flight, you can engineer that. Um, it's been done. And, and, and so that's convenient. But I think we have to separate the transactional from what I was discussing with you earlier, which is the relational, which is what you were alluding to and your kind of um, unhappiness, as it were, that you can't relate to your students anymore like you used to do and you would like to. So I think that um, it's going to be very difficult for a, a, a purely from a computational tools perspective. It, it's just 
you can't compute human experience or human consciousness in, in its broadest sense, in its deepest sense. So I don't believe that there will come a day where the machine will be human-like or a human-level intelligence, at least not with the methodologies that we are using today. So then how do we tell the difference between a socio-technical system that does do something valuable and streamline something such as booking a flight from ones that do not. Is there a way to tell prior to the implementation of these systems or is it a kind of trial and error thing? Because it seems to me like a travel agent process uh, and a teaching process might on the surface of it in the design of a product or the initiation or the ideation of an idea for one of these socio-technical systems might seem like they would have equal value and equal plausibility as a socio-technical system that would work well. But of course, in the implementation, we start to see the radical differences. And perhaps there are you know, things that we're missing out on in a travel agent interaction that somebody who is a travel agent, which is not I, uh, would notice that I do not notice in the same way that a student might not notice that their learning experience is drastically altered by these socio-technical systems. So I think, I think if we con- contrast the two examples, right, a booking system, a travel booking system, and, a, and an interactive learning system. I, I use the word interactive because it takes two to tango there, okay? Whereas a, a travel booking system is more of a recommendation system. You tell it, it the inputs are very narrow in terms of how you in, how you provide input. So it's usually a, a drop-down box. You actually type something you want, you know, you want to come to London. You're looking for a flight from, you know, California to San Francisco to, to London and it'll bring you up all the flights, right? And then, and then all the times and then the prices you then choose and then it's more of a transactional system. Your interaction with it, with that particular STS, is very narrow because the inputs are, are through the keyboard, typically, okay? Whereas in, a, in an interactive system, like a chatbot, is a good example, right? If you, if you interact with any e-commerce site, bank, or your, say, credit card firm, and, you know, it's got a bot on the bottom left, or bottom right of the screen, and, you know, you're supposed to be able to interact with it as a human being, most of the time, and obviously these chatbots have evolved over time and they've gotten a bit better. But by and large, if you have a problem, right, with a particular transaction uh, or a particular issue that you want to raise with, you know, the, the organization, in, in the old days, you pick up a phone and you go into the branch and you talk to somebody, right? And then, and then your your depends on the complexity or the you know, the type of problem you've got, that, that human being will be able to understand what your problem is and help you navigate to get the solution. These chatbots are dumb, okay? Let's say you book the flight, go back to the travel, uh, you know, site. You book the flight, you want to change it, right? Or you want to do something, you want to do something different and it's got a bot in there and you try interacting with the bot. You, you see the same kind of limitations and, and the frustrations that you would get you know, in many other social technical systems where interactions are, are required between two parties rather than a one directional sort of transaction. Do you see the difference between the two types? Yeah. Yeah. And and you know, I would be the last person to to utter a sympathetic attitude or to have a sympathetic attitude toward socio-technical systems. But when I'm hearing you talk about this, you know, I'm reminded that the, the booking through the travel agent might have been messy and complicated. And sure, a socio-technical system interface might be a better way to book that ticket. But as soon as I run into problems, I want that travel agent back. Right. Exactly. I want that travel exactly. agent back. And so now I'm I'm, you know, trying to think about this and I wonder, is there really any socio-technical system that is equipped to deal with or to to interact with human um, complexity or will they all on a certain level when they're dealing with a massive amount of people break down is the ease of the travel agent qua socio-technical system really that different from the ease of a you know educational system that employs these socio-technical systems or are they all doomed at a certain point in time when they become as expansive and widely used as they are and in so many different parts of a process uh, engaged all likely to ultimately have some really negative, ugly consequences. I'm guessing it's the latter. (laughs) (laughs) I think one idea I'd like to introduce as you're speaking though, Deb, is uh, the idea of choice. So an algorithm will use statistical analysis and probabilistic analysis and come up with suggestions for your flight from New York to San Francisco or whatever it might be. 
But does it give you everything? And does it give you the choice that you might make if you were speaking to, let's say, Chris, who's the travel agent in this in this in this scene? What about social, emotional, and and and, and IQ? I mean, when we interact as human beings, we we have social intelligence, we have emotional intelligence, and we also have cognitive intelligence. So so and 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 we sense things, you know, from the environment. We get a vibe. You don't have that, and you'll never have that with a socio-technical system. Because uh, the nature of the algorithm is, is thus. I mean, why have we struggled so much to, to build robots, you know, that can move <laughs> or that can sense things, that can feel things? Of course, technology will evolve. And of course, the tools will be much, much better in the future. Of course. But I think we have to be careful if we anthropomorphize these systems too much. And I think we have to be careful if we, if we think we can substitute humans. So let me give you an absurd scenario. You have an office which is only run on a socio-technical system, whatever business that might be, and all of a sudden the system goes down. Then what? We can't only rely on technology. We also need to trust ourselves. We also need to understand that it will be a hybrid kind of a structure and a hybrid kind of a relationship, even a hybrid intelligence, if you are. I, I don't like to use that word because it's not really intelligent. It is a computational tool. It computes. It, it, it creates numbers to represent symbolically something in the reality, akin to the reality, but it's not the reality. And this is a philosophical point, and I, and I realize that, but it's, it's important to try to understand that. Yeah, Maria, I think about your and then what. Uh, issue quite a bit because I think it gets to a major ethical stake, which is the stake of accountability. And I've been thinking a lot about the ways that STSs reframe classical and crucial legal and cultural terms of accountability. If I need urgent medical care and I call a hospital and no one at the hospital provides access to that urgent care, I might have a legal and a moral claim against the hospital. But if my call is handled by an STS and the STS sends me on this endless kind of feedback loop, as I described in the case that we talked about earlier, it seems to me that the hospital can shift the blame onto the SDS or that categories of accountability that are that are clear when we are talking and dealing with other human beings that we interface with get obfuscated or eradicated when we're dealing with these technical systems. I think, for example, of the office that didn't provide crucial documents that I urgently needed because the computers were down or the internet went out. This is an experience that I'm sure many of our listeners will have. To be sure, technical issues happen, they happen, they do, but they do seem to remove agents and agency from the equation. Nobody is responsible if the computer did it, right? Who are you going to blame? Steve Jobs, <laughs> the Spectrum Internet Service Provider? So how do STSs interact with classical moral terms such as accountability? Who becomes accountable, not just in a legal term, but also in a moral sense when STSs go wrong or cause harm? It's uh, exactly that. I think uh, in lots of cases, it seems to be that people think, oh, well, it's the technology. There's, you know, we can't explain it. You know, bad outcome happened, not our fault. What concerns me even more is this idea that AI should have leadership, that AI should have rights. That worries me because that means that we're giving up completely our autonomy, our agency, our self-identity. I mean, it goes quite deep and we don't have time to go into everything now, but but it worries me that we should think that this is okay. It's not okay. And in fact, you know, in the scenario that you just said, let's say that, you know, I fall ill suddenly, my voice will not be recognizable to an algorithm because it hasn't been trained with somebody who's having a heart attack or something horrible. What happens then? you know, the ambulance will never come. So I think we have to be really, really careful. And, and, and one word I would like to mention before I give over to Chris is um, the word purpose. I think before we do anything at all, we have to understand for what purpose we are designing the system. What does it need to do? Is it appropriate to use a system like this? Or do we need to retain human agency and human autonomy in certain circumstances? Yeah, just to echo what Maria said, right? it's, it's very easy to hide behind technology and not take responsibility, let alone accountability for, for what's happened. And, and I, I've seen this so many times happen in, in large corporates. Okay? And they've put in a new system, the system didn't do what it meant, was meant to be doing, and then they blame the system, they blame the third-party suppliers as well. And, and they, don't, they don't go back and, and ask themselves, why did I put this in and, and what did I actually do to, to introduce safeguards right? when these things go in? We've also seen the European Commission recently propose for the first time a targeted harmonization of national liability rules for AI. Basically, they're saying 
that it's it's going to be easier for victims of AI-related damage to get compensation. So they're holding these firms accountable for deploying systems that could harm individuals. And and that and also you know when you when you then add what we've we're seeing or what we've seen in court in courts right with civil and class litigation, lots of them out there. I wouldn't I wouldn't go through and name them. You can Google them. Yeah, it's it's accountability is is being placed right at the feet of the the leaders of these organizations, the boards and the CEOs. So they they need to wake up to the fact that they've got this. They need to understand what risk have come with it, and and you know being unknowingly onboarded into the organizations and deal with the risk because uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow up. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the supply chain or the value chain, however you would like to define it, it, it is complex. It is, you know, interdependent, you know, and it's often the case that if you're going through a third-party supplier, now whether that's controlling the data or processing the data, often you don't know what data sets have been used for the training. You don't know what the processes are behind. So you don't actually know what risk you are onboarding. And, you know, Chris and I have given a very obvious example in some of our articles, which is to do with the hiring process. And, uh, and in fact, New York has now just, uh, state has just published a, a law which will be effective, I think, 1st of January next year, which says that if you're using an automated system for the hiring process, you, you have to be you have to be certified. It has to be meeting X, Y, and Z criteria. And that's important. The reality of it is that there will never be enough, let's say, resource for enforcement of the legislation, the regulations that do exist, nor will these tools, let's say, these structures ever um, sufficiently cover all of the risks. So Chris and I go back to the drawing board and we say, right, the CEO and the you know chair and you know their colleagues need to be responsible for implementation of any socio-technical system. And we work both sides of the fence because equally the technology company must be transparent in stating which data sets it has used, which processes it has used. It doesn't have to disclose its, its, its IP, but only then, if we have a true collaboration, will we move forward and can we develop these systems in the right way with the right levels of participation? Because ultimately, technology is here to stay, but we just want to do it in the right way. You know, over the course of the conversation and after reading your work, I've come to the realization that as maddening and as potentially grave the uh, scenario that I pointed out initially with the doctor's office might have been, or as irritating as I find STSs in my daily life as I try to navigate these systems and as they expend a tremendous uh, amount of cost to my time, I'm really just scratching the surface of the very serious consequences and implications of these SDSs. Can you talk a little bit about what you see as some of the most significant and unsettling consequences of STS deployment across our social, political, cultural, and economic terrain? I think it goes back to purpose. It, it goes back to understanding what the system needs to do. Let me put it like this. If it's more on the relational side of the equation, then I think you need to think twice whether it's appropriate to put in place a socio-technical system. If it's more transactional, then I think you can engineer the processes, you can design the system in such a way as to make the system effective and efficient at the same time, but it requires time so so as not to create that harm. And, and you need to be able to identify the outliers. So that's from a kind of a procedural uh, place. The worst that can happen is that, well, let me give you an example. This is the best way to answer it, I think. There was an incident last year, which I actually flagged, and um, I don't think many people understood, but it was an insurance company. It happened to be in the US. The lady was a lady of 39. She was disabled, and she, uh, she was denied care by the algorithm. I found that horrifying. One life lost, she obviously died. One life lost is one life too many. So as to the worst outcome, for me, it's the human loss. Now, how can we know that the algorithm is skewed in the wrong direction? We don't. So it goes back to the next point, which is about trust. You know, we talk about transparency, we talk about trust, but what does that actually mean? What does it actually look like? Until I know what data you hold about me, how you've profiled me, how you're using it, I don't know that I can trust you, SDS system, <laughs> socio-technical system, because you might have the wrong data about me, because don't forget, I'm not an average, I'm an individual. So it's true to say that if you focus on the individual patient, you will actually do beneficial, out, you know, you'll engineer beneficial outcomes 
for the majority of people. But if you start the other way around, unfortunately, the crucial information is lost in those averages. And that's where I have the concerns. Yeah, I'll add to that as well. I mean, there's a great example where the harms that have come out of an algorithmic decision, uh, which is automated, I presume. And we've only just started to scratch the surface, right, on the extent of harms possible, whilst these SDSs continue to, de- to be deployed without any operational safeguards and accountability. One thing to note is within this SDS, right, the machine learning algorithms, they're, so, they're, they're very powerful because of the pace at which and, and the power at which you can process a lot of data and then come up with inferences that are then used to, to make decisions or profiling. And a, a lot of the, 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 the organizations and the people behind them, they understand what this power can do for them, right? And they use it to achieve the desired outcomes. Now, in terms of whether the 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 good outcomes or bad outcomes for for people, that that's another question. And these outcomes in commercial, social, and political settings. Uh, unfortunately, most of them have forgotten the catchphrase that with you know, if you watch Spider Man, it's just with power comes responsibility, and this is where ethics come in. I want to shift the conversation away from the realm of critique to toward the realm of correctives, because from this conversation, I get the sense that STSs are not going anywhere. They're here to stay. We're not going back to travel agents and receptionists for all of our queries. Um, so what are some solutions or correctives that you might offer? What are some of the safeguards that you would advocate for if we are to continue to have these STSs and if they are to continue to develop and grow and inhabit more areas of our lives than they do already? So we need to think about whether these STSs are deployed directly from within the enterprise. So a, a tech organization building it and deploying it as opposed to deployed via third-party providers, which is what most corporates uh, do, right? They, they buy the systems or they procure, they, they, they subscribe, they license uh, through a third-party and it gets delivered by the third-party. So in, ter- in terms of the, the, um, the safeguards that you know, we can, we can um, talk about, they, they do differ between the two scenarios, okay? So, so we, we write about operational safeguards. And what does that mean? So when we talk about operational safeguards, we, we cover the following areas. Privacy data protection, risk management, bias mitigation uh, in those uh, models, ethics, which we've mentioned, security and safety. We look at compliance if it's a regulated organization. Uh, we, we talked previously about diverse inputs and multi-stakeholder feedback. We also talk about sustainability. We talk about explainability and transparency. Well, overarching uh, element would be the accountability, governance, and oversight, which I think Maria uh, touched upon uh, earlier. And over and above all of this, for trustworthiness, we propose or we recommend that these SDSs undergo independent audit by, by obviously, a a third-party independent audit to get that verification that uh, these safeguards are effective. So, so those are the the safeguards that we would, you know, we would recommend that every deploying organization uh, think about operationalizing, and and obviously to do this, change is needed within these organizations because the way they're operating now doesn't uh, facilitate the embodiment of these safeguards, and so therefore the mindset has to change, and that's because of the what we call the four eyes, okay, uh, as in the letter I rather than eyes. Uh, and that, that four eyes really uh, refer to interdisciplinary intricacies, interconnectivity, and interdependencies of these elements, which are akin to earlier as connected tissues. Okay, for for that represents the whole STS. And importantly, uh, culture change is critical to ensure that and uh, all of this come together under the responsible innovation banner is embedded within the fabric of the organization because it is pointless bringing consultants in like doctors. In right to 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 try and bring a cure, but the moment they leave the room or leave the organization, the culture doesn't you know cannot sustain that responsible innovation within the organization. Everything just falls back to what it was before. So so everybody from the board down to the most junior employee needs to walk the talk, and it's about mindset, talent, and culture. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I would like to just expand on the term governance. People seem to think that governance only exists at the board level, but actually governance exists right the way through the organization for every process, for every practice, for every 
you know, norm for every water cooler moment. I mean, you need to be aware right the way through um, at all levels of the organization, you know, what the values are, what the risk tolerance levels are, what the thresholds are and so forth. But more than this, you need to become resilient as an organization. You need to be able to respond in real time to any issues that might arise. And you need to empower people to be able to do that. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about resilience, but it doesn't actually go far enough because the big piece of the jigsaw puzzle that is actually missing is adaptation. If you don't adapt, if you don't allow your people to learn as they go, then you have a system that will actually fail. What you're doing is you're just augmenting, amplifying through the system, the fragilities that, you know, you've unwittingly onboarded, which we uh, alluded to earlier. So when we approach a, a project or a transformation, you know, for us, it's really a 360 view that we take. We look at multiple lenses because it's multidimensional. And we really examine, you know, the interactions between people. We start with people before we look at the processes, before we look at the systems. Because if you don't understand how those, going back to Chris's four eyes, how those interdependencies, interrelationships actually work, then you really can't begin to unpick the complexity that you need to do in order to simplify. You need to simplify, but by saying simplify, I don't mean reduction um, in, in the scientific sense. I mean, make it easy for people to be able to communicate because fundamentally that's what we're really discussing here today. I wanted to ask a little bit more and probe this uh, question of laws and regulations further. When I talk to students about things like consumer protections and technological innovation, I always get a contingency of the group who will insist that the primary responsibility actually belongs to individuals to develop literacy, awareness, and self-protection against, for example, data privacy or literacy to learn how to navigate these systems better or a kind of digital literacy to understand how to interact with AI better. And then there's always a contingency of folks who want regulation, who want the government to take this on, or who want this kind of a ideal third-party regulation, maybe like the United Nations or something of socio-technical systems. And then there are folks who say that the liability should belong to the business and to business operations, and that businesses should become more ethical. I know where I stand on this. I sometimes think that the terrain of ethics, which is my domain, is a terrain that oftentimes is used to obfuscate the need for laws. If you put the onus on businesses, then you also give the incentive uh, to businesses as well to do things on their own terms, not because they have to comply, but because they choose to comply. So they get social credit when they implement socio-technical systems well, or if they're careful, but they don't face any real consequences when they don't. So I'm wondering where you stand on this tripartite kind of breakdown of digital literacy and individual responsibility on the one hand, governance on the level of regulation on the second hand, and on the third hand, an ethical uh, stance or ethical obligation or ethical choice or optioning on the uh, level of the business itself. Where do you stand on the split between the three? Yeah, you need all three. <laughs> okay, let's start with the individual. It's not enough to be data literate or to be technically savvy. You actually need a much broader education. You need to understand what data is and what it isn't. You need to know what information is and what knowledge is, and then what wisdom is beyond that. That in itself is, 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 not, is not enough because, as you were saying earlier, if you make a mistake and there's nobody to correct you, you might just think that it's okay. The regulator or the legislator, they are always going to be lagging behind the pace of change, and that is the fundamental problem. Hence why we were talking earlier about organizational safeguards and, and, and governance structures. And, and so really, uh, I think, you know, what I'm trying to say is that we, we need to broaden the education such that every citizen understands the nature of the technology. And beyond that, that they know how to relate to data, information and knowledge. They are three different things. And wisdom, obviously, is something else, too. I have the same view in terms of the options. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think that, you know, each party would want the other to take the responsibility, right? So I've, I've heard advisors to corporates say, oh, no, the regulators will build in ethics in the regulations. Yeah, yada, yada, yeah. And expect the regulators to be covering or pr providing the, um, you know, the, the safeguards. Equally, corporates that or technology companies don't like regulations because they see that as an impediment to innovation, right? 
So it's everybody. But the way I see it, right, because they're not mutually exclusive, the reason being all three options are stakeholders in the SDS. Remember I talked about what the definition of SDS, right? It's not just the technology and data. They're all stakeholders. And therefore, they need to play their parts. Um, and each each of these, you know, those options, the individual, the corporates and the regulators have a part to play, uh, you know, to make these SDS safe and, and, and fair and ethical and all sorts of things. right? And, and yeah, I mean, individuals need to be more aware because ultimately they, uh, they have a choice, right? They have a choice out there. It's still a competitive world. They don't need to submit to them where they have choices. And, and I think, you know, we, we, this is the time to be aware of where our future is heading. And take the necessary steps to necessary steps to make sure that the future is what the, what the kind of future that we want it to be, rather than being you know railroaded into one that others want to create for us. Yeah, absolutely. So if if we if we just uh, zoom out a moment, every actor in society has a role: the state, the government institution, the the, the public entity, the corporation, the business the individual citizen. And I think it's only if we collaborate that we can actually achieve what we need to achieve, which is hopefully, I think everybody will agree, hopefully, a beneficial outcome. I mean, at the end of the day, that's that's what we want. We want to have choice in our lives, that we can we can have a, a good life and that we can we can have a good planet to live in. I mean, there isn't another one that we know of that that can can be as hospitable as our own. So maybe we, you know, we ought to just start there. What keeps you up at night in the context of STSs? Where do you think they're headed? And where do you think that we're headed in our engagement and our stakes with them? Yeah, so I'll, I'll kick that off. There is an elephant in the room, and I don't think many people talk about it publicly. And you know, if, we, if, we, if I try and describe what it is, it's about data. The entity that's got the data has the power and the power to control. And ultimately, STSs are built around data because they process data, right? And data flows be, you know, between the different uh, entities within the, the SDS. So leaders of organizations with such power and control are shaping our future. So the future currently, unfortunately, does not prioritize human-first and human-centric considerations. Okay? And, and we've talked about that uh, throughout the, the, the podcast um, today. Human rights, human autonomy, human agency, human dignity are attributes and values that will be lost if we do not ensure that they are preserved in a future world dominated by automated decision-making and profiling from these SDSs. And this is why we do what we do, raise awareness and engage leaders of organizations who decide on investing in technology to slow down, pause, reflect, and realign their mindset, talent, and culture. And it starts with purpose and it starts with why. Why are we doing this? Society, each one of us have a choice at the moment, we still have a choice when it comes to interacting with digital services delivered by STSs. Okay? The choice that we make are, make are based on trust. We engage with someone if we trust them, and the same should go with engaging with an STS or the organization deploying that STS. But we, don't need to, we do not need to engage if we do not trust them. Simple choice made by society can contribute to the change we need to see in how these SDSs are deployed. It doesn't keep me awake at night that much, but I do think about these things. And, and yeah, it is, it is important for I think society to also be aware of where we are uh, in, in the juncture of, of uh, these technologies. Yeah, I, I, I can only echo that. I mean, let me put it in a very simple way. I think about the unborn child. What I don't want is, you know, for that child to wake up in a world that is somewhat dystopian, somewhat Orwellian, somewhat the worst Hollywood <laughs> version of, of that dystopian future that we can possibly uh, imagine and think of. This technology is immature. It's still very early days. It's embryonic. So what that means is that we have an opportunity to, to shape it and to make decisions that will actually lead to a better world. So on the one hand, we need to think about the human values that we've talked about today. On the other hand, we need to think about the planet. And we do need to think about sustainability. I mean, when you talk about the cloud, I mean, the cloud is not the cloud. It's not this vaporous thing in the sky. It is a physical, very large <laughs> hardware center, you know, filled with data. And I think at one point, we also need to discuss the moral implications do we really need 
to scrape data indiscriminately from any which source possible, whether that is a an electricity smart meter or a phone or a, an Alexa or whatever shall be. And do we really need to pry into people's lives to the extent that we are doing at this moment? So that goes back to Chris's point about power. Who has got the control and who's controlling who or what is controlling whom? And these are really fundamental questions. And I'd like to leave the audience with just this thought. What would you like your digital future to look like? Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Deb. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We're off next week for the Thanksgiving break. Join us the first week of December for a new episode of the 22 Lessons in Ethics and Technology series. To learn more about the 22 Lessons on Ethics and Technology series or the Technically Human podcast, visit www.etcalpoly.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the show so that you don't miss an episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you in December.